Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Special Experts Only. Today, we dive into the new FERC proposed final rule, FERC Order 2222 with uh, CEO of uh, Advanced Energy Economy, Nat Kramer, and the Managing Director and General Counsel, Jeff Dennis, who has immense experience with FERC. If you're like me, you sort of know what FERC does, but you really don't fully understand all of it, and you really want to dive in uh, to get a better uh, a better understanding of not just the organization, but what a rule like 2222 will do for the, the industry, and what, more importantly, the market opportunity is for those that want to be a part of it. Uh, for those that aren't aware, FERC 2222, uh, will help usher in electric grid, the electric grid of the future. It's going to promote competition in electric markets. The idea is it's removing the barriers preventing distributed energy resources from p- competing on level the level playing field with organized capacity, energy, and ancillary service markets um, by regional grid operators. So it's a really interesting order that came out in September. Uh, the playbooks are being put together right now by the RTOs, and you can have a, an opportunity to engage. Go to uh, Advanced Energy Economy's website, aee.net. There's a lot more there on the order. And also, you can learn from this co- conversation with Nat and Jeff about how you can get involved, how you can take action. And you know, if, if I'm in your seat, I'm really looking at where's the opportunity here? How can we really enhance opportunities for asset owners to aggregate and be a part of these markets? Uh, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Nat and Jeff, thanks so much for joining me at Experts Only. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So Nat, you're the you're the CEO of Advanced Energy Economy. You've got a really sort of powerful background in the, the private sector, also the military. Uh, for folks that don't know, you're a veteran of Af- Afghanistan, having served in the Special Forces. But you know, you helped grow uh, or found and grow Sunrun, and then moving into uh, sort of growing and in, in, in founding Clean Power Finance, which became Spruce. Just quickly, like what got you excited about moving from that side to Advanced Energy Economy? What I saw in running Sunrun, Clean Power Finance, and then being chair of the National Solar Industry Association was that we were moving from an industry that were a set of insurgents that we were trying to break into the energy economy, and that we're starting to become a dominant form of new energy and the new, right. the biggest new source. And when you switch from being an insurgent to being the dominant new technology that people are investing in, you really have to change how you engage uh, the economy, uh, policymakers, um, um, frankly, your customers. And you really have to come to it and say, hey, here's my plan to power an entire economic system. And this is how clean technologies can do that. And so I saw a gap. And that gap was that advocacy for our industries was tended to be siloed around specific business models or specific technology types. And right. really didn't come to policymakers and say, hey, here's the plan to go to 100% clean. Here's the plan how we're going to electrify transportation. Here's how you can do that for an industrialized economy so that it is safe, it is clean, it's secure, and it's affordable. And nobody really was telling that story in a comprehensive way um, except for AAA. And AAA really was going out and bringing that message to decision makers, governors, um, PUC commissions. Um, FERC uh, at Capitol Hill and saying, here's how we actually do this. 
Here's how all of these different technologies work together. Here is how all of these different business models work together. And here's how we actually execute the energy transformation. So I was attracted to the fundamental business model that AWE was prosecuting. One, and I've been excited to see, you know, while I've gotten to be here, um, AWE has some huge fit wins. For example, the Virginia Clean Economy Act. Right. So yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're, that's a huge market transforming example of the kind of work that I'm describing. Yeah, I've, I've, having been on the other side of the table when Advanced Energy Economy came in to talk to us at places like the White House, I, what I loved about the organization I still do is it's not a think tank, it's a do tank, right? It's it's spending the time really thinking about these issues, thinking about the market transformational piece of it, and then advocating those policies and pushing the, the, that, that forward-leaning agenda, which is so key, because there's, there's a lot of folks that think about it, uh, not right. many people that do it. So That's right. Um, and just so for, for folks that are aware, you guys are a membership organization. You can go to aee.net. Someday you got to buy .org, by the way. Should be a, uh, a business yeah. focus. <laughs> um, how do you, you know, how, who are your members? Like, how, how do people end up joining? Well, we have, we have basic members who join us um, for a relatively small amount of money per year. And what they get is they, they know we're advocating on their behalf. Uh, and they get a lot of intelligence that's very granular about how we're you know, taking those big ideas and transforming policies so we can expand markets for them. And then we have members who will join us and spend more money with us, frankly, who help shape those policies. And so our members are everyone from folks who are involved in developing wind and solar and battery storage, uh, to people who are providing smart grid technologies, to electrifying transportation, to energy efficiency. So it really is the entire technology suite of transitioning our economy from dirty fossil to clean and renewable, and then doing that so we can also electrify transportation. We have we work at the state level and, and also at the federal level. Um, we tend to focus on specific markets, and we really are member-driven in the sense that we ask our members to bid on you know, places where they think policy, we can have the biggest policy impact. So in a lot of ways, we're investors um, because really policy is effectively real options investing. So Absolutely. when people join us, we take their capital and we say, what's the optimal portfolio you'd like to, us to pursue? And we go pursue it. And what it's meant you know, for the time that I've been here is that really the, among advocacy organizations, the best track record of opening and expanding markets, you know, clear above 20 gigawatts for renewables, many billions of dollars for storage and electric, um, electrified transportation, as well as energy efficiency programs nationwide. Uh, love it. Love it. So for, for the audience, we're going to have a separate conversation, Nat and I, about advanced energy economy, the work they're doing sort of post-election. Uh, and really, uh, you may not know this, I've been really focused, Nat, on what the next year, 10 years look like for the industry so we can you know, get beyond sort of what um, the, the the growth we've had today, which is about setting the table to really expanding and, and growing the, uh, moving forward. So I'm going to shift to Jeff for a second. Jeff, Jeff Dennis, who's Managing Director and General Counsel. Jeff, you're, rec- you're sort of a nationally recognized leader here uh, in energy law and policy. You haven't always been on the advocacy side, though, right? You served on the, the private side and actually uh, sort of adjudicated stuff in front of FERC before? Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, I also spent over 10 years at FERC uh, in a oh, variety of roles, um, advising a commissioner, uh, director of policy in my most recent stint there as well. Yeah, so a wide variety of experiences at FERC and then in the private sector as well, a couple of... Uh, of great law firms uh, representing clients like AE and others uh, throughout this energy transition. So I'm, I'm going to step back and simplify a lot of this for the audience who may, may not 
know this, but just for for folks that aren't aware, first, what is FERC, and you know, what is the, what is the role as a play sort of in our industry? Well, so FERC is what we call an independent regulatory authority, and so it is given certain responsibilities by Congress to regulate electricity, natural gas, uh, hydroelectric dams, as well as some smaller things like uh, transportation of oil and um, propane and, and products like that. But mainly when we think about FERC, we think about its regulation of wholesale electricity markets, uh, the transmission grid, and uh, as well as regulation of the transportation of natural gas by pipeline. When we call it an independent regulator, what we mean by that is that it is designed by Congress to be part policymaker and part adjudicator. So um, there are five members. Uh, There can be no more than three of any one party. Every year, one of those members' terms expires. So there's always the opportunity for a president to nominate uh, and have confirmed by the Senate a new commissioner. Um, So intended to be somewhat removed from everyday politics and to, uh, you know, carry out that regulatory authority in that way. Yeah, for the, for the audience that, that don't know, it is truly a regulatory independent organization. When I was at the White House, you, you could provide ideas, but you could influence FERC. And I think you saw this in, in the, this last administration, or the current administration, when they tried to move forward with uh, putting on a premium around coal, for instance, in terms of utilities. It was a major push by Department of Energy, uh, but the, the, the commission stepped back and said, no, this doesn't make sense for the market. And it was a pretty major uh, victory for the industry as a whole. So, um, yeah. So for so FERC, I want to get into FERC Order two 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 for a second and the process behind it. Uh, but before we're doing that, let's just talk process for a second. So when an order comes out from the commission, there's been a tremendous amount of legwork done ahead of time, research by probably folks that like yourself when you were sitting there uh, before they come out with this proposed rule. First of all, give a little bit of color on what that lead up looks like, and then what are the next steps beyond a proposed rule before it becomes sort of the law of the land. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, exactly as you teed up there, there's a lot of pre-work that goes into an order like this. And so uh, going all the way back actually to 2014, when I was in the policy office at FERC, I actually led a team that really started looking at this, really focused on distributed storage, actually, mostly. Right. And looking at seeing the explicit growth of distributed storage and uh, the potential of its impact going forward on wholesale electricity markets. Um, that team did a lot of outwork within, uh, outreach with industry, actually. Um, and then if you fast forward a couple of years, we started seeing entities like Advanced Energy Economy coming to us and suggesting that, that the commission take the next step and uh, really look at how do wholesale electricity markets that FERC regulates how do those market rules in those markets present barriers to energy storage and distributed energy technologies more broadly? And those barriers are often a matter of the fact that these markets were created about 20, 25 years ago with a totally different set of technologies in mind and a set of technologies that operate, that have technical characteristics and operating characteristics that are a lot different than energy storage, distributed solar, or even utility-scale wind and solar and all of these different technologies. Right. Um, and so these these aren't kind of what you're thinking about, like politically driven, we're going to just say, we don't want wind in our markets or this or that. It's typically because a market rule was designed around a conventional technology, and it needs to be adjusted to assure that that, that newer technology 
can provide the same service on a level playing field. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a clear recognition of the energy transition that's been, been underway and in a way to sort mm-hmm. of play a major role of it. So I do want to, so let's dive into oh, just quickly, uh, the proposal rule comes out and then just process for a second here. You know, the, the, really the industry as a whole has a chance to comment over the next, uh, was like, I think 90 day, 120 days. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And then the commission will take those comments and then put a final rule out probably early part of next year. Um, so actually we already have a final rule order of 2222 oh. is a final rule. Yeah. In 2016, the commission actually in, initiated this rulemaking, um, following up on really the suggestion of AE and some other parties to put out a rulemaking that said that directed regional transmission organizations and independent system operators, the big grid operators that uh, run the markets for two thirds of the load in the country. So um, big markets, big economic opportunity. Um, And what FERC said in that rulemaking was, we propose to direct you to open your markets to participation by energy storage, as well as uh, aggregations of distributed energy resources. Um, And so I put that out for comment. Um, One thing that's important to highlight there, which is hopefully not too in the weeds, but um, there's two ways that things come before FERC. Either a utility, which can include an RTO or an ISO, files a proposal on its own, or FERC on its own gathers evidence, determines that these markets may no longer be just and reasonable under the statute right. um, because of market barriers, inhibiting competition or something like that, and then proposes to take an action. And that's what FERC did here based on information that separate was from like the new, uh, net metering effort this summer that was a proposal with the utilities and net meter exactly exactly right yep and so so FERC said based on our review of the industry our review of the evidence uh we think these markets are not just unreasonable because they're not accommodating participation by these resources and we propose to change that yeah, excellent. So I do want to get in the weeds here uh, pretty quickly, but before doing that, just to help define for folks what uh, how FERC sees a distributed energy resource, right? You've got obviously storage is a piece of it, uh, is distributed generation, solar, like what else do we sort of continue, would you put into that bucket for, as a definition? Well, so FERC in the final rule defines distributed energy resources broadly and in a technology neutral way. Yeah. Uh, to be anything essentially that sits on the distribution grid or behind a customer meter. In the commissioner's own statements and in a lot of kind of what's inside the rule, you can tell they're very focused on energy storage on the distribution grid and behind the uh, meter. I call it distributed energy storage. Certainly rooftop solar, other forms of distributed generation like fuel cells, those kinds of things they're also very focused on electric vehicles and associated yeah. infrastructure yeah so those are those are the technologies i think the commission has in mind now i think that's one of the things i wanted to get at. i think the the ev space is really fascinating here where the opportunity sort of using it as a storage mechanism and aggregating that power is is really pretty advanced thinking in terms of what the mm-hmm. the, the grid could do so so take us through order 222 you know what just, I think from a very simple way, like I think you've given sort of a great overview of it. You know, what is sort of the the, the major changes that are coming out of this uh, for for uh, the utilities? So what the order at, um, at its most basic level does is it directs the regional transmission organizations and the independent system operators 
to open their markets to participation by aggregations of distributed energy resources. The commission's order finds that existing market rules don't accommodate the ability of these resources to aggregate together to meet whatever requirements there are to provide wholesale services, whether that's a requirement that you be a minimum size or that you be able to operate for a certain amount of runtime, for example, right? So maybe an individual storage resource or demand response or energy efficiency resource couldn't do that, but when they are combined together, they could. Right. Um, so whatever the technical requirements are to provide wholesale energy capacity or ancillary services, this order says allow distributed energy resources to aggregate to do that. Um, and then the order goes into quite a bit of detail about exactly how the RTOs are to go about that. Uh, various um, eligibility requirements that they need to define in their tariffs, uh, requirements for how all the various actors um, that are involved in a distributed energy resource aggregation will play together, right? So admittedly and understandably, distributed energy resource aggregation is a little more complicated than what these markets were designed around, which was a wholesale market operator, a very large conventional generating resource, it's now you've got you know a distributed energy resource aggregator, an owner or operator of an individual distributed energy resource, the RTO, the ISO itself, the distribution utility, and state regulators. So there's quite a bit of discussion in the order about um, how the RTOs need to go about coordinating among those folks as well. Um, but at a high level, those are the the um, the key requirements of the order. So back to process for a second. So the, the order then tells the the RTOs, here's what you need to plan for. And then the next step, they actually have to put up plans over the next uh, certain window, right? So that people know how to execute within it. That's right. That's right. And because this is a relative, obviously, this is an area where the RTOs and the ISOs will need to um, adapt how they comply to their own particular market design. There's a lot of similarities among these markets. Right but they're also quite different in their own ways. And so the RTOs and the ISOs are given 270 days uh, uh, to come back on compliance with plans to actually put this into their their FERC-regulated tariffs. So the things that are on file at FERC and that actually govern the markets from day to day. So let's get out of of the weeds and out of process for a second and talk about what really the market opportunity, or go ahead if you got another point. Well, no, one more process point that I don't want to leave out because it is really important is the RTOs won't go do that in a vacuum. Right, They will work with their stakeholders to develop those plans. And that's a really critical part of this process for anybody who's interested in the market opportunity that this order will ultimately present um, or, or any of the other details of the rule how the RTOs actually comply, uh, develop those compliance plans and the input they take from industry is going to be really important because once those get to FERC, FERC's window for making detailed changes to those becomes more limited. So it's a, it's a process point, but it's a really important one. No, super important. So if, if, if I'm, you know, I'm an aggregator, right, of, of storage or I'm a member of AE, like how do I take part in that campaign like, and, and help uh, weigh in on, I think, what really the critical tran- you know, formation of this, uh, this plan? So we as AEE will be carefully monitoring all of the stakeholder processes and engaging in each of them on priority issues that we determine with our members. 
So, um, you know, Nat talked a little bit about our membership structure as well. And for folks who've kind of bought up to that level where they influence our policy, we'll be working directly with them in market in, in, in a working group uh, to determine what their priority issues are and then determine the best strategy for getting those in front of RTOs and ISOs. Those processes will play out in various RTO and ISO committees. Um, and so we also have a tool called PowerSuite. Uh, right. that we've recently upgraded uh, to allow you to actually track those processes. And that'll be a tool that'll be really important for folks who want to track those processes directly uh, and get engaged in them. Um, but being at the RTO, and of course, in this time, virtually at the RTO through WebEx right, right. and whatever, <laughs> whatever their preferred uh, option is, uh, is going to be really important. And so, you know, one of our focuses at AEE is really facilitating the ability of our industry to participate in those processes because they are, they're resource intensive. They, um, they are a bit of a, um, they have their own language and, right. you know, their own culture, if you will. And so helping um, companies who might not be uh, longstanding market participants um, or may even be new to the energy industry because of their investment in distributed energy um, helping them unpack all that is a, is one of the key things that we do. No, I think that's that's such an important point. And not just unpack it, but then understanding what actions to take, right? Because I feel like for companies like, like Clean Capital is a, a growing company. We don't have a policy shop, a dedicated policy shop that we can access for FERC regulatory folks to weigh in on this. Like we would look to an advanced energy economy to you know give us marching orders and how we can play a role, whether it be simply slapping a logo on a letter or providing comments. You know, are, will that quote unquote campaign be driven? You guys be driving driving that camp campaign to the different RTOs across the country. We're going to do everything we can to drive that campaign. Right? It's um, it's resource intensive, so we're out there Super. looking for more partners to come in and join us. But uh, but yeah, that's that's our mission and our focus. And what we've really focused on in the last couple of years across the board, not just with this issue, is getting our companies more engaged in that stakeholder process on a day to day basis because. The way you influence it is is no different than a legislative process. Right, you're there. You know, in in the old in person times, you're there every day drinking the the coffee and eating the bad pastry and talking <laughs> about your kid's soccer game on the weekend and all of that. And and our industry needs to be in there doing that with the utilities, with the conventional generators, uh, and other traditional stakeholders. Excellent. So let's let's um, before we ask people to sign up and become members to do that, which we will be doing for sure here, Nat, just to give you a heads up. <laughs> What's What I get excited about is the market opportunity this means for not just a company like Clean Capital, but folks that are aggregating DG and really looking beyond the standard power purchase agreements that we have in place today, because the market is moving in some really interesting places with community solar, obviously with storage. Um, the DG energy transformation is underway. Could you give us some color on how you guys view the changing market and what this means uh, for DG over the next uh, the next decade. Yeah, I might be able to take a little bit of a stab here, and I think Jeff can too. You know, when I originally co-founded Sunrun, we called it Sunrun Generation back in 2007, and the vision was we would own this fleet of distributed power generation units, which right. nobody had at that point. Right? It just didn't exist. We didn't even have smart metering that had route density. Everything had route density, so we couldn't even meter things the right way. But the idea was one day we'll be able to take these assets and we'll be able to aggregate them 
and use them in the wholesale power markets, just like you would use a big central station power generation unit. And I think what we see today is you know, 2222 basically codifies that you can do that. We see it being done in patchwork ways across the country. This basically opens up the market and says, if you can imagine taking a bunch of small energy assets, whether they're reducing the amount of load you need, or they're providing capacity, or they're providing some other ancillary service, or they're just aggregation of generation at the right time of day, um, you can batch them up cost-effectively, bid them into the market, and participate alongside you know, the two gigawatt nuclear power station in Palo Verde, for example. Right. And so I think that's that's the, the beauty of it, is now there's an opening for innovation to happen, where there's a clear path for this is what you how you take your assets into this big market. And I think there's been, you know, historically, it was a vision, and then it became something people could test. And then there were some trial markets, like the market out here in California. And now we're saying it's like you can go into the big market. I think what, what on a large scale, what this is what this is going to do, it's going to position distributed energy um, to be able to provide more value to the market. The reality is that a lot of value is moving to the customer location. Right. And as right. we electrify transportation, a lot of load is going to move to the customer location. I mean, just to just to put it in people's perspective, your average six-pump gas station is going to need as much electricity to fuel that many vehicles as your average factory. So the amount of load density per square foot is going to go way, way up in the energy future. And for us to be able to manage electrified transportation in intermittent clean energy, we've got to have a way to get all of these resources into the market, which creates a lot right. of innovation. And I think that's the big framing here. That's a really interesting example, right? So you're saying when the, the, in the electric vehicle world, the six pump station is going to need as much electricity as a warehouse. It's fascinating. So yeah. if, I'm going to put, ask you to put your investor hat back on. Um, yeah. And you were looking at opportunities, aggregating these you know, most asset managers don't have the capacity yet to, you know, begin and or the technology solutions in place, right? To aggregate and to take advantage of this. Do you see sort of a development in this, whether it be the stems of the world or others that are starting to aggregate uh, in support of asset managers and then selling into that market? How do you sort of see that part of the market developing? Yeah, I think I think historically what people would say is, well, wow, if one day I could play in the capacity market at PJM or I was able to dispatch generation at the right time and trade around this asset, well, that's just upside in my financial model that I can imagine. It's just optionality in the terminal value of the investment. Now you can say, look, is there a cost-effective way for me to actually monitor control and control that asset. And if I can monitor and control that asset and I can do it at the standard that the RTO or ISO requires, now I can deliver. Um, and so those are two parts. And the second part is, am I credit worthy to participate in the market? Right. Either I've got the balance sheet to do it or I rent the balance sheet of a credit worthy institution, which is a form of borrowing. So I can basically get a facility. And there are plenty of people out there who will do that for you. And once you have those three things, which is, you can monitor it, you can control it, and you've got the credit to actually make sure that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, which is dispatch or you're going to pay. You now can you can make turn that into an asset. There are, I think, businesses, and you know one of them, that'll be able to say, listen, I can 
I can monitor for you and I can give you control. And that's a software and a little bit of commodity hardware, frankly, uh, technology. Matching that with credit, this becomes really an underwriting activity for investors who really specialize in understanding these markets and these assets. In other words, has an asset actually been created? And can I actually you know, match that to a credit facility? Um, so I think there will be a, a set of investors who can specialize in this area and that they'll be able to take, you know, if you think about it, they'll be able to take an you know, a fixed income or a merchant you know, risk profile on the equity returns around these assets. Um, they'll be able to take a piece of that action. Yeah, let me ask you that because we t- I talk a lot uh, or have been talking a lot about you know obviously the movement of the institutional investor into this into the distributed generation space or clean yep. energy as a whole. They're just now really getting trickling into the DG space, but that's because they understand what PPAs are, right? So now right. we're going to add this extra level of complexity and opportunity. What do you think that's going to do to the capital providers? Is it just going to make it sort of a, a boutique pool of folks that are playing here, or are we going to get the pension funds down the road? That, okay, I, I, I can under I, like merchant scares them, right? The idea of merchant, <laughs> merchant yeah. rates just like I don't know what you're talking about. That's Chinese. I don't get it. Um, right. So how do we sort of educate them that this is a, a very valid place to be investing? Yeah, I think what we're going to find out is that large scale institutional capital will back specialists who have an improved investment track record right really understand the esoteric nature of parts of these markets and understand how to perfect an asset and underwrite and manage that asset i think that'll accrue to the crew to a set of platforms that are already out there they may be control as you do you know controlling a bunch of dg assets yeah um, they may be in the store playing the storage space i think there'll be some you know one of our uh, members is in the uh, electric transportation space, and they're providing school bus fleets as a service, pay per mile to school districts. But then, you know, the bus doesn't operate for a lot of the day, and it doesn't yeah. operate during the summer. It's a grid yeah. asset, using it as a grid asset. I think the institutional capital will come into those platforms where there's a manager, as opposed to what we're starting to see in the renewables market where the institutional capital will do it direct into projects or yeah. might or might say, listen, I'm not going to pay a lot of money to a financial manager, like as you see in the you know, you know, BlackRock, Goldman, Capital Dynamics platforms, where they say, listen, I'll pay you very low fees, go out and put a lot of money into renewable energy projects. I think we're a long way from that moment, but I think we are in this moment that this gives the opening for platforms to be backed. Yeah, it's super interesting. And then I'm going to ask one more sort of finance-oriented one, and it's around tax equity, right? Where, you know, um, depending on a Biden administration, if there's a Biden administration, there may be a push to uh, move away from just the pure tax credit. It, it is a chokehold in the distributed generation space. For sure. For sure. For sure. Um, and, you know, this just adds an additional layer of, I mean, community solar itself scares a lot of tax equity investors who aren't going there yet, just worried about getting enough subscribers. You know, you can put this layer in. So how do we either educate that community on the opportunity here uh, or, you know, put in policies, play, a policy in place on the tax side to help eliminate that chokehold, right? Because I feel like that that's holding up so many deals right now, just trying to find the tax equity. Yeah. Yeah. John, I pr- appreciate you asking that. You know, earlier this year, I think I came out and I not think I did. I came out and I wrote 
an opinion piece and we put a forward a piece of policy that said, look, the tax credit should be refundable. Exactly. And you know, you should basically be able to safe harbor things that are refundable and carry it forward. And by the way, if you use domestic content, you should be able to get you should be able to get that for even longer. So like let's help American workers, let's help American manufacturing, but let's take the constraints off of the tax equity market. And the reality is that 11 cents out of every dollar of tax credit is going to a financier. And there's really not a great reason for it, as you and I know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm probably the person who's done the most tax equity and the most first-time tax equity in the order of billions in creating an industry in a segment who's willing to say this because everybody else <laughs> will, is getting tax equity and is scared to say it. And the truth <laughs> is, look, you know, love my friends who are doing tax equity, love the market, but guys, you know, you should you should go back to a world where you were doing three times as much volume like we did on the 1603 grant program at one third exactly one third the one third the fees. Having the tax equity market constrained has really gotten in the way of innovation. If it looked more like a lending market against a government refundable receivable, the, the industry would grow a lot faster. The financial institutions are in the tax equity business would have much bigger businesses. They wouldn't be niche portions. Of their respective financial institutions, you know, I know that would be better for their personal careers. It hell would be a lot better for the broader industry and all the businesses. So, you know, I'm hoping for Biden administration. I don't think we need to go back to 30%. Um, but I think, you know, for the for the mainline renewables, I think if we could be 26% and refundable, you're right. We would unlock capacity that would be able to address. All these new segments in the industry take advantage of this. I've, I've oh. taken too long saying that, but I totally agree. No, no, no. This so this is this is part two of our of our next podcast. We're going to talk yeah. very much on this next because I, I I feel you on this. This is something I've been pushing pretty heavily and advocating for. I do want to go before we end here um, and go back to to FERC two twenty two and and Jeff. If if you have a, a message to the audience on what they need to be doing now over the next six months to ensure that this market opportunity is there for, for, for the industry, you know, other than listening to the podcast and signing up at AEE to learn more, you know, what do you want them doing? You know, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one we hit on earlier, of course, which is engage in those RTO and ISO stakeholder processes with your associations like AEE, with partners, however you can get in the door, because the RTOs and the ISOs need your input. And in fact, a lot of times what I heard when I first came over to AEE and was working on this side of the industry was they often said to me, we, we don't hear enough from distributed resource providers. We, we, don't, we don't know exactly what they need. So, so, so that's always job one for me. I think the second one is working can I say, closely. Just to follow up which, on that. What, how yeah. can they do that? If, they're, if, they're, if we are members of, of CEO or members of, of uh, we, we need to become members of AEE, Nat, we've talked about that. You know, but what... <laughs> How do they? How do they? If they if they're not aware, right? And I would say most of the reasons that DG people aren't make bringing those messages forward, they don't exactly know how, right? They don't have the big checkbook to have a policy. It seems like what what do you suggest they do to be part of that coalition? You you find somebody who will knock on the door for you. So what we do for our members, and not just really our members too. I mean, we build broader coalitions as well, right? Because we've got a public interest mission that extends to our entire industry, right? So we 
we knock on the door at PJM and we say, we'd like to bring in these five companies. And, you know, going back to where Nat started, one of the great things about AE is I can bring an EV uh, charging uh, infrastructure developer. I can bring a distributed solar developer and I can bring a battery energy storage developer. And I can sit them all in one room and they'll all say the same thing about what they need from the RTO and ISO market rules to allow them to build out the business right. uh, in a reliable way. So, you know, that that's a big part of what, what you need to do is just find somebody who will help you knock on the door and then go knock on the door. These markets and the RTO and the ISO staffs are much more open to conversation than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Um, you have to recognize the position they're in, which is they have a compliance obligation. They are dealing with a stakeholder body well beyond you. But, you know, part of my job is to help folks understand that. Like, here's because sure. I've been at this for 20 years now, right? So here's what you're going to hear from the natural gas-fired IPPs. Here's what you're going to hear from the consumer side and the distribution utilities and, and being able to put all of that together and form a coalition. That's that's why I talk about it like a legislative process, because in a lot of ways, that's what it's like. Um, yeah. but, but it starts with, with showing up. Um, the, the second piece I wanted to, the second piece I wanted to mention too was, you know, so many distributed energy resource providers today and in the future are participating in retail programs, retail programs. They help shape at the state level, whether it's things we're seeing more recently, like clean peak standard programs and other things like that, you know, whether it's like smart Massachusetts or, or any number of those programs work with your state regulators to make sure that this is not viewed as a threat, but as an opportunity to capitalize on investments they've already made. So when I advocate for policies like what became Order 22-22, and I put on my old regulator hat, the thing that I emphasize the most is how much value the entire grid and customers will get from taking these assets and utilizing them for more services. And it's, it's not unlike any other asset on the grid. The more you get out of it, the less customers have to pay to invest in some other asset that they wouldn't need to build, right? Right. And so the opportunity to defer expensive distribution upgrades in particularly hard to build places, the opportunity to defer a 30-year investment in a generation asset that climate policy may make obsolete, all of those kinds of opportunities are, are critical to what states want to do with their own policy and with their own clean energy economies. And so really talking about that with them and making sure they understand the opportunity as well, I think is going to go a long way to ensuring that at the end of the day, we have RTO ISO markets that not only provide the opportunity for these assets, but harmonize well with the opportunity at the retail level as well. I love it. And then one, one, one last question. What's the numbering system? We just get lucky it's two, 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 or just uh, <laughs> how, how that happen? <laughs> so, so it's interesting. Um, there is actually a sequence of order numbers that FERC uses. Not every order gets an order number, and I won't go into that. But then the chairman, at his or her discretion, can decide to assign a different order number oh, uh, out of the sequence. So. For example, the commission's landmark order that restructured the industry, order number 888, uh, was named by Chairwoman Betsy Moeller uh, because the commission had just moved into a brand new building at 888 First Street. Uh, so that's 
that's just one example. Neil's like two, 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 two. That's it. We're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it, it was a combination of his kids' birthdays and other things. I think he explained. Oh, yeah. that's hysterical. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. And Nat, thanks as always. I look forward to continuing the conversation. You know, thank ch- you, sort of challenge our audience to go to aee.net. First of all, there's great detail and information uh, on a blog that Jeff did around for order 2222. You can find it there. Learn more about Power Suite and how you can sign up to be part of the campaign. Want to thank Monique from your team for helping to put this together and our producer, Carly Batten and, and Colleen Young for helping to sort of manage this on the Clean Capital side. As always, you can find more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.